a few people were coming in this morning, and, and uh, Gianna said to me, uh, is this going to be like the road to Emmaus, where you're going to reveal to us all the secrets of God? And um, I thought about it, and I said, wait a minute now. Let's go back and read that text. Let me just read it. You don't have to turn there yet. Uh, just let me read it to you and listen, okay? You know the story. Jesus appears to the men walking on the road to Emmaus. It's after the crucifixion. They're uh, depressed. huh? They're going home. And they had had great hopes in our Lord. And, um, and he says, uh, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay? So when Jesus wants to tell us who he is, and we're going to see that in the, in, uh, the Gospel of Matthew today, as we look at some of the prophecies in the infancy narrative, um, he, what does he do? Where does he turn? To the Old Testament. He says, you're not going to understand me. You're looking at this whole thing in all the wrong perspective. And that's why you're depressed today. Because you don't see me in the context of history. You're not looking at me with the right eyes. And I think that is a major problem that Christians face today. That we look at Jesus as Johnny come lately, if you will. Okay? He shows up on the scene, and what does he do? He tells us we've got to be baptized. You've got to take babies and you've got to dunk them in the water three times and this is supposed to save us. This is supposed to bring about our salvation. He holds bread in his hands and he says, this is my flesh. And he holds a chalice of wine and he says, this is my blood. If you eat this, you won't have to die anymore. You'll live forever. He sounds like a crazy man. He does. You've got to allow our Lord to speak and be effective on the terms that he was teaching on. It sounded a little crazy, some of the things he was saying to some of his listeners. Some of them did not understand what he was talking about. But those that did understand, those that had faith, followed him because they knew what to expect. For those that knew the Old Testament were looking at Jesus with eyes of faith. They weren't looking at Jesus with a blindfold on. They weren't looking at him saying, okay, look, everybody else thinks you're crazy, but I'm just going to close my ears. Yes, Lord, whatever. I, I don't understand it, okay? But fine, I'll follow. Yes, there's that sense of of laying down your intellect and your will at the feet of our Lord. But more importantly, they knew the Old Testament and were willing to see Christ in those terms. And so when Jesus turned to these men walking on the road to Emmaus, and he said, what's wrong with you? Don't you know the Old Testament? They would have known the readings from the synagogue. They would have known the readings of Moses. They would have know, known the writings of the prophets. And they would have known them well because they didn't have a Bible sitting on their coffee table in their house getting dust on it. So when they heard the text, they memorized the text. They didn't spend a bunch of time reading 
say a lot of other sources, a lot of other things, faithful Jews spent their time reading the scriptures, listening to the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures, so that Jesus could say, you know, it's, our Lord didn't pull out his uh, Ignatius Press Bible here and uh, on the road to Emmaus huh? and start reading Moses to them. He started quoting Moses from memory, and they knew it. They knew the text. These were things they had heard before. These were things they had been taught from their childhood. Okay? I, I say this at the beginning because when we look, when we read the prophecies, or I should say, when we read the New Testament and we're reading prophecies in the Old Testament, unfortunately, we don't allow ourselves to take the step that Jesus had those men on the road to Emmaus take. We're listening and we're reading, but we never take the time to reflect upon it. A virgin shall give birth, shall conceive and give birth. What was that about? What was that written about? Who's the virgin? Ah, but do you know that it was not originally Mary? The text was written within a historical context. And when Matthew quoted that prophecy, an entire story opened up for the early Christians. A whole worldview opened up that they knew well from the Old Testament. A whole story about their history opened up for them. When, when Matthew or Luke or John or Mark, when they quote the prophets, they're using a one-liner, if you will. It'd be like me saying, you know, at Mass we sing, holy, holy, holy. Okay. They knew the next word. They knew not only the next word, but they knew the whole story that went with it. Okay. When Jesus is on the cross... And he, and he starts speaking as though he's been abandoned by God. He's quoting an Old Testament text, which ends up, if you go back and read it, showing that though they are mocking the person as though he's been abandoned by God, he indeed has not been abandoned by God. And he quoted the text for that purpose. But yet, we take the text or the quote out of context. We allow Jesus to speak or we allow Matthew to, to, to write but we never take the time to go and reflect upon why he's writing what he's writing and what it meant to his audience. And we end up creating, recreating the gospel in our image after our likeness. Does that make sense? Okay. So, what are we going to do today? Not a whole lot. We're going to do some basic things. I'm not going to stand up here and lecture at you. I'm not going to expose to you all the mysteries of God that were revealed on the road to Emmaus, nor all the mysteries of God revealed in the infancy narrative of Matthew. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Matthew today because after Christmas we're going to go and look at Luke with Dr. O'Donnell. Okay, why are we studying, just for a second, somebody asked me, why are you having these incarnation things in January? after Christmas. Christmas is over. No. It's just begun. 
And now, with the grace of the nativity, our minds can be open to understand the text more fully. So in January, we'll be looking at, at Luke. But, um, but today, we'll go in and look a little bit at Matthew. And I just simply want to give you the tools so that you can go home and in hopefully when you have a little bit of time during the Christmas season, I hope you have some days off that are coming, you can just spend a little bit of time getting away and being quiet and allowing the Gospel of Matthew or the Gospel of Luke to take you back into the Old Testament, to follow the thread and to discover for yourself what it meant for the early Christians. I want to be able to give you those tools to be able to do that. Okay? So... Prophecy. What is it? What is prophecy? The uh, Atwater Catholic Dictionary. Had to look it up so I could give you guys a nice one-sentence quote. When you look up prophet, it says, it defines a prophet. It says, a prophet among the Jews was a messenger of God and a preacher. Secondarily, secondarily, a foreteller of the future. So first, the prophet speaks the words of God. He communicates the will of God to the people. Okay? And only secondarily, he foretells some future event. Most of the time when the prophets are speaking, they are not foretelling a future event. Or that is not their primary purpose or goal. Occasionally, yes, some of the texts do point to the future. But primarily, they are speaking the words of God for the people. What does this mean for us? When we're reading a prophet, what do we need to know? Answer me the question. When we're reading the prophet, what do we need to know? Historical. The historical context in which he is writing. How many times have I said that to you guys before? At least a hundred times, if you've been listening to me. Because there's nothing more I can do for you when you're reading the Bible, nothing more important than to get you to get the historical context. Without that, I'll say it again, we're recreating the text in our own image and likeness. The Catechism says, In sacred scripture, God speaks to man in a human way. To interpret scripture correctly... The reader must be attentive to what the human author truly wanted to affirm and to what God wanted to reveal to us by their words. Okay? So you have two authors. You have the historical context in which the text is being written. The first thing to ask, what is the author intending when he's writing this? So, again, when we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew and it mentions a virgin conceiving and it says... The prophet, as the prophet says, first we're going to find out what prophet is speaking, okay, and what is the context in which he is speaking. Okay? Once we have that, once we've done that background study, then we can allow the text to mean more than the historical context because not only is the human author writing, but God is intending something much more than simply historical commentary. He's meaning these words for our eternal salvation. And so the events of the Old Testament, the words of the Old Testament, point to a future reality, to something bigger than themselves. 
not just to the future, but also to more important, just the con bigger context, the moral life, the spiritual life, and so forth. Okay? So the two authors, the human author and the divine author. I want to read you, I'm going to dare to read you a quote from the Summa, always dangerous, um, because it's difficult, but I think we can get through it today. First of all, St. Thomas quotes Gregory the Great, and he says, Holy writ, by the manner of its speech, transcends every science. Because in one and the same sentence, while it describes a fact, it reveals a mystery. Pointing to the further significance of the text. And then St. Thomas begins. So put on your seatbelt. We'll get through it. Don't worry. It's one paragraph. Look. We can understand it. The author of Holy Writ is God, in whose power it is to signify his meaning. Whose power it is to signify its meaning. God gives natures to things. God determines what a thing is. Hmm? It's for him to determine the meaning of writing. It's for him to determine the meaning of things in this world. The author of Holy Writ is God in whose power it is to signify his meaning. Not by words only, as man also can do, but also by things themselves. Meaning that he can create things, he can make things, which in themselves are signs, like a word signifies something beyond itself. The word tree signifies the tree. Okay? But God has the ability to bestow upon a thing a nature which itself signifies a further reality. Does this make sense? Okay. So, whereas in every other science things are signified by words, and this is where he gets a little bit complicated, so I'm just going to use our really handy dandy marker board for the first time. Okay, here's the word. Here's the thing signified. So whereas in every other science things are signified by words, this science, the divine science, has the property that the things signified by the words have themselves also a signification. Okay, the thing itself points beyond itself to some greater reality. Therefore, that first signification whereby the words signify things belongs to the first sense, the historical or literal sense of Scripture. When the prophet Isaiah speaks of a virgin, he's speaking about a historical reality within his own context. But he can also be speaking of something beyond that historical context. That signification, whereby things signified by words have themselves also a signification, is called the spiritual sense, which is based on the literal and presupposes it. It is from this foundation that we can understand the, um, say, the art or the practice of typology. You've heard of typology before. Yes? Anybody know? Okay. Typology. 
I'll read you this quote, and I think it'll bring you right along. By the way, I was thinking as I was preparing, I haven't recommended this book to you guys in a long time, The Bible and the Liturgy by Cardinal Jean Danielou. Danielou. The Bible and the Liturgy. Excellent text, difficult, but excellent. He says that the realities of the Old Testament are figures of those of the New is one of the principles of biblical theology. This science of similitudes between the two testaments is called typology. And here we do well to remind ourselves of its foundation, for this is to be found in the Old Testament itself. At the time of the captivity, the prophets announced to the people of Israel that in the future God would perform for their benefit deeds analogous to and even greater than those he had performed in the past. This is the practice of typology, that Old Testament figures or realities point to something beyond themselves. That God is using these events and these people, Daniel speaks of uh, just events, but also people, that have by their nature something more. They are pointing beyond themselves to a fulfillment, something even greater. When God acts, he always acts the same. Founded in love, God gives himself to his creation and reveals that love in a certain way. And so throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and even today, when we come into contact with divine things, they look similar to what has happened in the past. God saved his people, as Cardinal Jean Daniel is talking about, by taking them through the waters of the flood, Noah was saved. Similarly, Israel went through the Red Sea, being washed, if you will, of the sin of idolatry, leaving, leaving behind their slavery to sin, so that they could come before God and stand before him as a friend, face to face, as Moses did on Mount Sinai. The point of Mount Sinai, the entire congregation of Israel was to come before God, not just Moses. The entire congregation of Israel was to be changed, to start to shine from their, literally shine with the glory of God, to be restored like Adam before the fall. And so when God acts in the New Testament, he takes us and walks us through the waters of baptism, the new flood, the new Red Sea, that we might also leave behind sin and come to life in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay, the science of typology. But look, here's what I want you to get. These are not, just like Jesus is not Johnny come lately, these similitudes between the Old Testament and the New Testament are not, um, you say, accidental occurrences that we happen to find similar things about. Not at all. Because it is God who is acting. Daniel points to the sacraments here, but, but I want you to think of this also in the context of the New Testament as the fulfillment of the Old. He, speak, he says, the sacraments carry on in our midst the memory the, of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. They carry on in our midst. Let me put that in other terms because we're looking at the New Testament. The New Testament carried on in the midst of the people a continuation of the great works of God in the Old Testament. 
a fulfillment of the great works of God, a further revealing of those works. In fact, a further revealing of the work in which God loves his people. For example, the flood, the passion, and baptism show us, listen to this, the same divine activity, the same divine activity as carried out in three different eras of sacred history. And these three phases of God's action are all ordered to the judgment at the end of time. He goes on a few pages later and says, he says, the sacraments were thought of in the, by the early Christians as the essential events of Christian existence and of existence itself as being the prolongation of the great works of God in the Old Testament and the New. So I just put this in terms for us also, that the New Testament is the prolongation of God's great works in the Old. It's not something where it's Johnny come lately. It's not something new and surprising, or it shouldn't be. And if it is, then we've built a house on something that's very unstable. The foundation isn't there. And it doesn't take much for someone to walk up to a Christian who is not well-founded in the Old Testament and knock that house over. And they will walk out of the church because the Eucharist doesn't make sense to them. Baptism doesn't make sense to them. And they've spent their whole lives blind. Thank God faithfully walking along the path, but blind. And someone can come up and trip them up very easily. So if we're well-founded in the Old Testament, if we're well-founded in the prophecies of the Old Testament, not just the things that foretell the future, those are there, yes, but those, or say, foretell the future explicitly. But also, to be well-founded in the great works of God in the Old Testament, which themselves are prophecies, which themselves point to something beyond themselves, to a fulfillment which is greater than them. And if you're well-grounded there, when you open up the New Testament, when you read Matthew, when you hear the prophecies spoken about, It will be natural to you. When Matthew was writing, he wasn't writing something, or Luke, or the other writers were not writing something which would have been foreign to the people. It would have been something they would have understood. This is the point of writing, isn't it? Okay. And if we read those texts, and we don't understand them, or we simply understand them in, 2000, in the context of 2009-2010, then we're understanding them on a very superficial level. In fact, most of the time I would say we're misunderstanding them. Okay? Look at that, I'm on track. So, you have a, you have a handout. Who doesn't have their handout today? That's right, raise your hand, get your handout. I'm not starting without it. So that book is there. If you guys want to take a look at it, it's put out Notre Dame Press or something. You should know that Cardinal Daniel went a little crazy later in life. So I, I just read that book and stick with that one. It was early enough. Unorthodox uh, theology, if you will, yeah. You know, some of these guys in the 60s, I don't know what happened in the 60s. <laughs> it's okay. All right. Okay, okay. Here we go. Now, here's what I want to do very quickly. What time is it? Okay. Uh, first of all, I want to try to get us out early today. Helen is requesting that I finish early. You guys can go to Macy's. 
you know, shopping. <laughs> Don't forget about me when you get, at, when you get over there. Um, originally, this talk today was a series of talks. Originally, we had scheduled as a three-part series on salvation history. Okay, we've done salvation history before. Because of the scheduling conflicts, change of, of locations and things, we had to make it one talk. So I changed the topic also, slightly. But just as I just said a couple seconds ago, if we start doing the prophecies in the New Testament without being rooted in the Old, I'm not going to be doing you any favors. And so what I want to do very quickly for the next 20 minutes or so, or 10, 15, however long it takes, I want to go through the whole Bible. From beginning to end, we're going to look at a couple of things, and I want to make sure that we're all together. Don't worry, we can do this. So open up to the book of Genesis. <laughs> Stick with me because otherwise we won't be able to do this very quickly. And you might think, some of you might think, oh, this is way too simple. But there's a lot of Catholics in the room. <laughs> All right. So I want to just very simply, what we're going to do is we're going to walk through the Bible. You're going to get comfortable again with your Bible. And once we're comfortable with our Bible... We can look at a few prophecies, and I can show you what I'm talking about, about the right process of how you deal with prophecies. And, uh, and then you can go home, and you can read all of these things on your own. So you have that outline that my brother put together. Very nice. Okay, the first section, or for the top line of it, will show you some basic dates. You could drop in there if you want to write on it in about 3.30, right around 3.30. Um, uh, Aristotle is on the scene, and, and Alexander the Great makes his conquest. Just point this out to you, because we just went over this. About 250, the Punic Wars happen. So those are just throwing in a couple of secular dates that we've just been dealing with, and those might help you kind of place the context here. So you'll see those basic dates. These, these dates, of course, are, are very general. They, they're following the biblical... Uh, um, time span, okay, following the scriptural time span, uh, which some people doubt, but for our purposes, this is, this is what we're going to make use of. Um, you'll see about 5,000 years or so before Christ, the age of the patriarchs. So the next line down there um, tells you the major events which took place, early history, patriarchs, so forth. The third line down tells you the major people that you need to know. The fourth line down, which is colored, are the historical books. If you read those books, you will be able to read the Bible historically. You'll be able to follow the story. Now, some of those, there's, there's parts of some of those which are difficult. There's parts of some of the other books which are helpful. But for, nevertheless, if you read those, you get the, the major story. And then below that, you will see, um, say, extra historical books, meaning they're books which are written within the context of the historical narrative of the line above. So you'll see there like Leviticus, the second one over, is written right there in, the, in between Exodus and Numbers. Actually, um, you might move that about an eighth of an inch to the left within the context of Exodus towards the end. Okay? In fact, Leviticus is written for what purpose? Liturgy in the context of, Jennifer? Yes. Yes. What was the purpose of Leviticus? The why, was, why did it have to be written? What happened? The golden calf. 
the golden calf happened, and the firstborn priesthood, the firstborn men were the ones involved in the worship of the golden calf. Okay, it was a fertility cult of the firstborn. And so they gave up their right to that firstborn priesthood and handed it over to the Levites. And why the Levites, Sue? They were the ones that sided with Moses at the time of the fall of the golden calf. They were the righteous tribe. And why did they side with Moses? Because Moses was a Levite. There you go. And they gained the priesthood through that event. Okay, that's more, content, more detail than we need to go into. But it shows you how this whole thing is put together. So, quickly, just take your Bible with me. Okay, and please just, just go with me. I won't lead you astray. Okay? So, you have the book of Genesis. Find the end of the book of Genesis, which is Genesis chapter 50, which brings you to the book of Exodus. Who are the major figures of the book of Genesis? Adam. Go with me, guys. You've done salvation history. How many of you have done salvation history with me? Okay, then let's just help me out here. Adam. Seth. Fine. Noah. His son, Shem. Right? Who's the next major person? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and well, then you get Joseph, you get the 12 sons, right? And who is, the, who is the one who receives the patriarchal blessing to become head of the family? Judah, Judah of the 12 tribes. That whole story right there is in the book of Genesis. And if at any point in that, what we just did, you say to yourself, I kind of maybe heard that name before. Do yourself a favor. Give yourself a present for Christmas. And for the love of God, read the book of Genesis. It's beautiful. It is an amazing story. There's everything you want. There's sex. There's, there's war. There's, there's God. There's Satan. I mean, it's a murder. I mean, yeah, if you're watching television, turn it off. They got nothing on the book of Genesis, okay? Read it. All right. The story of the Exodus. Yes, Sue. Sure. Look, a patriarch is a father, right? He's a father. So you, they, they, the terms here you can use loosely, okay? You have to... The patriarch. Yeah, but the problem is then you detach Abraham from Noah. And you're going to tell me Noah is not one of the patriarchs? Or Adam? Huh? Okay. So, All right, fine. We're at the book of Exodus. You know what happens. They sell their brother into slavery, Joseph, right? And your sin's going to follow you, right? And they end up where? In Egypt, in slavery. They did it to somebody, it happens to them. They end up following into, into Egypt, and then God raises up Moses, right? And does what? Leads them out to the promised land, right? They had already been in the promised land with Abraham, well, with Adam, right? And then with Abraham. And then they lived there, they were taken out, and they come back. Very simple. Geography in the Bible is not hard. Very straightforward. Okay? They don't go very many places because they always want to get back to the same place. Home is home. It doesn't change. Okay? Adam and Eve were in home. They got thrown out. Abraham was brought back in. With the story of Exodus then, they finally end up back in the promised land. And look at your thing there. You've got the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. This Deuteronomy being the second law. Okay? are extra-biblical, or not extra-biblical, 
extra historical. Okay? They're, they're fitting into the story as parts of the greater story which is taking place there in, in the book of Exodus and Numbers. And at the end of uh, the book of Numbers, just go with me, okay? G- Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and with the book of Joshua, what happens? Yeah, they finally they come, they come across the Jordan River and they enter back into paradise, into the promised land. They go through the age then, if you're looking at your thing, they go through the age of the judges. The story of the judges is very simple. The people fall away, God raises up a judge and says, uh-uh, don't do that. The people reform. They go to battle, God is with them. They take more of the promised land. Then they fall, they get some of the idols of what they've conquered. They fall into sin. They, go, they get beaten. The judge dies. And then they fall into sin. And then God raises up another judge and so forth. You know the story of Samson, don't you? The book of Judges tells you all about that. So just get there to the book of Judges. Go past Joshua to Judges. Okay, that's where my favorite story about the, um, about the tent peg through the, through the guy's temple. Right? We, the, the lady, yeah. It's good stuff. Read the book of Judges, not don't. <laughs> All right. You should see your eyes sparkle. <laughs> All right. And then after the book of Judges is the book of Ruth. Now, if you guys think I'm wasting your time, trust me. This is, we cannot go into the New Testament without this. And I've got about 10 more minutes to get through the rest of it. So, the book, we got Judges, and then look at Ruth. How big is that? How long is it? How many of you have read the book of Ruth in this room? If you haven't read it, read it. And look at the end of the book of Ruth. The last few verses, verse, chapter 4, verse 18. Now these are the descendants of Perez. Who's Perez? The son of Judah. And Judah's the patriarch of the twelve sons, right? Of Jacob. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron of Ram. Ram of Abinadab. Abinadab of Nation. Nation of Solomon. Solomon of Boaz. And Boaz of Obed. And Obed of Jesse. And Jesse of David. There you go. There's your connection. Right from uh, from the book of Genesis, all the end of the book of Genesis, all the way to the time of the kings. So the very next book, First Samuel, Samuel is going to be one, well, kind of one of the judges of Israel. Okay, he's kind of this middle figure between the judges and the kings. And it's during the life of Samuel that Israel asks for a king. So you have First and Second Samuel. And first and second kings. Grab those books. Go all the way to the end of the book of Kings. This is the time period in which Israel is in the Holy Land. And that story of the judges kind of continues. They fall into sin. They come out of sin. They're disobedient. But for the most part, for the most part, what do the kings do? Are the kings good for Israel? No. Over and over again through the story of the kings... You get stories of guys which are leading the people astray. Even Solomon. Even Solomon set up idols in the Holy Land. They're living in the Holy Land. The kings are over them. They're falling into sin. So what's going to happen militarily? They're going to get conquered. And it's at the end of, the, of Second Kings that Israel is finally conquered. And just like they were led out of the Holy Land at the time of the, tw- of the 12 sons who sold their brother into slavery. Just like that, they're going to be taken out of the Holy Land by the Babylonians. This is the Babylonian captivity. 
you got to know the Babylonian captivity. Why do you have to know the Babylonian captivity? When were the prophets preaching? Right during this time. This was the time, the time of the kings was the time when the prophets started preaching. Why? What did the prophets say? Give me one sentence. What did the prophets say? All of them. Thank you. One word. Thank you. (laughs) Repent. Okay? Um, They were speaking to a people that were steeped in sin. You're going to hell in a handbasket. And if you don't repent, you're going to be taken captive. If you reject God, then He will not be allowed to protect you. Not because He doesn't want to protect you, but because you rejected Him as your protector. And sure enough, that's what they do. And sure enough, the Babylonians come in and wipe out Israel. Well, they wipe out Israel and they wipe out Judah. I skipped an important event. Okay, and what event was that that happens right during the time of the kings? Yeah, the schism of the kingdoms. In the north, the whole of the north, all the northern tribes go into revolt against the kingship of Solomon's son. Solomon's son gets on the throne, and he's a, he's a, I mean, he's a bad, bad man. I won't use any language. I'm being recorded. Okay. He's a bad man. And the north says to him, forget you. We're not going with you. We're going to set up our own kingdom. And so the kingdom in the north is called? Good. And the kingdom in the south? Judah. And during the time of the kings, they both have kings. So whenever one king is mentioned, he's always so-and-so who reigned during the time of this other king. Okay, always in that context. And, oh, I should have my dates to seven, in the 700s, I want to say 721, fall of the northern kingdom. Okay, anyways, right in there. Uh, the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians, to the Assyrians, And the Assyrians come north. They surround Judah. Why is this important? Because it's right within this context. Did that prophecy in Isaiah about the virgin conceiving and having a son is spoken by the prophet Isaiah. They come south and they surround Judah. And it just so happens that there is a boy who's born at that time who becomes king and he repents of the sins of his father. And he staves off the attack of the Assyrians because God is with him. He will be called Emmanuel. God is with him. Okay, the king Hezekiah. We'll look at that. But what happens after that king? The people fall again. The Babylonians conquer the Assyrians and come down and they rock Judah. They wipe it out. They burn the temple. They take the people from the land. Jeremiah is part of that exile. And Jeremiah preaches during that exile. He writes the book of Lamentations. And he's also quoted in the Gospel of Matthew in the infancy narrative. He's writing during this time. If you don't know that context, be lost. The southern kingdom falls. There's three exiles. But you remember the year 600. Remember the year 600 for the, for the uh, conquering of the, southern, of the southern kingdom, which is the true kingdom. It has Jerusalem. It has the kingship. 
and so forth. All right. Seventy years later, what happens? The people are in exile in Babylon, and they're brought back to the Holy Land. In fact, we can look at that very quickly just to get our little get a little bearing because we kind of got off our way here. You're at the end of Second Kings. First and Second Chronicles tells you the story of First and Second Kings, but simply from the context of the tribe of Judah. So you can skip over that. At the end of Second Chronicles, you get the book of Ezra. It's right in between the book of Chronicles, okay, or the, or, the, or the time of the kings, and the time of the writing of Ezra that the people are in exile. It's right there that all of the prophets in your Bible fit in, or most of them. Okay? So keep your hand there and find for yourself Isaiah, or Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. Find one of those prophets in your Bible. Keep your hand there and find one of them. Isaiah or Jeremiah. You got one of them? Look how far away they are in your Bible. Okay? The Bible is not put together in that historical sequence. You got to know that because it can throw you off. Modern day readers, ah, where is this person? How are they? What's going on? Look real quick at Jeremiah chapter 1. Always the beginning of the prophet is going to tell you where he's writing. In the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, the priest, who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Amon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. That's the Babylonian captivity. So there, there's your historical context. You got to know where those guys are in First and Second Kings to be able to read Jeremiah. Look back at Ezra then. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Persians had conquered the Babylonians at this point. So that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among the people, may God be with him. And he takes those people and sends them back to their land with money. And says, rebuild the temple, restore Jerusalem. It's a, a pagan king, a pagan emperor. He ruled the world. Judah was nothing. And God worked with him in his heart to bring this about so that the world would be prepared for the coming of his son. Even working among the pagan rulers of the world. And I hope you've started to get this context. That we've done these programs on Alexander the Great, on the Punic Wars, uh, um, uh, reading uh, Everlasting Man. God is at work in the world to bring about his will. And here's evidence of it. So again, to read Jeremiah, you've got to know that context. You've got to know what happened. You've got to read First and Second Kings. All right. I think I've beaten that one to death. Just real quick then, look at the prophets under 2 Kings. These are all the prophets that wrote books. You'll notice Elijah's not in there, okay? Because he didn't write his own book, okay? Or if he did, we don't have it. 
During the 70 years, you get Ezekiel, Daniel, and Barak. So when you're reading Daniel and Ezekiel, you've got to remember, these are people who are captives in a foreign land. And they're starting to have visions about God. They're having visions about what God has prepared for them. And what has he prepared for them? That the temple will be reestablished. That the worship of God will be reestablished. This is the point of Daniel and Ezekiel. When they're having these far out visions. They're having visions of the throne of God. Because they're seeing the revelation of the temple. The temple of God which is incarnate on earth in the temple in Jerusalem. All right. And then quickly, you see Ezra, Nehemiah. These are the guys that returned from exile. Ezra's starting to write about what happened to him. He come, he's coming back. Nehemiah comes back. And then you've got a couple hundred years, a hundred years or so, a little bit more, of them being in this time, time of flux where they've rebuilt the temple, they restored Jerusalem, but they have two problems. What are they? Well... Not just the Greeks, but they're going to become a problem. That they are under another's regime the whole time. From the Persians to the Greeks, under uh, Egyptian control for a short period of time. Okay, The Romans rise up and take over. The people at the time of Christ are frustrated. You know, we look at them, oh, you know, they were looking for political, uh, you know, victory. And, and that's what they were expecting, the Messiah. You know, they're so stupid. We're, we Christians, we know better. Can you imagine a soldier, a foreigner, walking into your home and telling you what you're going to do? Taxing you? Telling you what you're going to pay? We get a little taste of it even in our own country. But trust me. Trust me. Anyways, look, we, this is nothing, what we're experiencing, nothing to what they were experiencing. And they looked for the hand of God for their salvation. They said to themselves, when will God bring about his promises? When will God fulfill what Jeremiah spoke about, what Isaiah spoke about, what Malachi spoke about? Turn to the book of, of Malachi, it'll be your last prophet of the Old Testament, just before 1 Maccabees, unless you've got one of these newfangled Bibles that flipped it around, and then if you don't see it just before 1 and 2 Maccabees, which are the last Old Testament books, if it's not there, it might be the last book in your Bible, that's what it is. It might be the last book, or it might be just before 1 and 2 Maccabees. Okay, now, before we read this text, I've got to also tell you, otherwise I'm going to have a revolt on my hands, that... If you do not have a chapter 4, verse 5, don't start screaming. It is chapter 3, verse 19. Thank you. 319, otherwise it will be chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. And Elijah lived back during the time of the kings. So this is way, way, way past that. I will, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite the land. Do you recognize that quote? In reference to what New Testament person? John the Baptist. Exactly, John the Baptist. This was the final words of the final prophet that Israel knew. And he said, Elijah's coming back. Before the Messiah comes, Elijah will come 
from God. What did they expect? Elijah had ascended to heaven without dying. He was assumed. He was assumed into heaven. And again, for those Protestants among us, huh? Mary was not the first one to be assumed. If you don't have, you have a problem with Mary's assumption, you have a problem with the Bible, not the Catholic Church. Elijah's coming back. When the Romans are marching through the town, when they're beating and murdering the people, when they're crucifying the people, do you think texts like that would have come to mind? They were searching for the day when God would save them from the godless Romans, from the godless Greeks, when God would lift them up again to make them his people, when he would reveal himself to them. That was the first problem. The second problem was when they came back, they rebuilt the temple, the glory cloud of God never returned, and the Ark of the Covenant was never found. It was hidden by Jeremiah on Mount Horeb, on Mount Sinai. Jeremiah took it down and hid it, never to be found again. The glory of the Lord was absent. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year, he walked into a black box that was empty. The people awaited the return of the glory of the Lord. They did the best they could do, but it's texts like this which drove them. It drove the priests, it drove the Pharisees to leave Jerusalem, to walk up or walk out of Jerusalem and go down to the Jordan River. Okay, how many of you have been to the Jordan River before? You know, it's not. It's not like, you know, the, the, the crystal clear, you know, with the palm trees hanging over, everybody's happy and bathing. and so. No. John the Baptist is out there. He's a crazy man. He's out in the desert, living in the desert, because of the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 40, that God would begin his return through the desert. We'll look at, at, the, at that text if we get time. And they were out there, the Essenes and the other communities were out there because they were, they were living on the edge. They were waiting for God to return. And when John the Baptist went down there and he dressed up in the clothes of Elijah, he literally put on clothes like Elijah was described as wearing. And he went down to the Jordan River where Elijah had been taken into heaven. And he started baptizing people. Baptism is not a just a Christian sacrament. It was known among the Jews. This washing with water, a spiritual washing. They did these things to prepare themselves, to, to free themselves from sin. And, and sure enough, we have prophecies in the Old Testament that God will cleanse us with water and put a new heart in us. And John the Baptist is on the Jordan River. And the Pharisees, they flip out. Is it Elijah? They go down and ask him in the Gospel of John. They walk up to him and they say, Are you Elijah? They're pointing to Malachi because they're hungry for the restoration of Israel. They're hungry for the return of God. And it was Matthew, Luke, John, Mark, the, all of the apostles that knew the Old Testament. They knew those texts. And they watched. 
and they saw Jesus and they said, that's the man. And they gave up everything to follow him. Everything. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to do this first verse very quickly. And, uh, and we're going to take a quick break. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What does the word Christ mean? Anointed. Okay, in Hebrew, Messiah. Anointed. And who was the anointed of Israel? The king. Yes, the, the, the things of the temple were anointed, the priests were anointed, but the anointed of Israel was the king. The genealogy of Jesus, the king. The king. And what king is he? He is the king who is the son of David. Who is the son of David? Solomon. And what did Solomon do? He built the temple. He restored the house of God. Or he built the house of God. And the glory of the Lord entered into it. The son of David. The son of Abraham. Who was the son of Abraham? Isaac. And what is Isaac known for? Being taken up on the mountain, the mountain of Jerusalem, to be sacrificed to the Lord. So, if you want to know who Jesus is, those are the stories that have to start popping out in your mind. The whole story of Abraham, of course, chapter 12, uh, the first couple of verses of chapter 12, that through your seed, the entire world, not just the Jews, the entire world, will be blessed. This is the context which you have to know, which has to pop into your mind because Matthew knew that the people reading his gospel would know these texts. And when he said Jesus the King, they knew what he was talking about. When he said he's the son of David, they knew what he was talking about. They knew what Jesus Christ was going to do. He was going to build the house of the Lord, the church. It was to be the dwelling place of God. And in the middle of that dwelling place of God, the glory of God would enter in. And the Gospel of John says, we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. When Jesus walked into the temple in Jerusalem, He was the reason that it was the temple of God. Let's take a quick break. We're going to quickly go through this genealogy and then chapter 1 and 2 of Matthew and look at some Old Testament prophecies. If some of you are saying to yourself, well, I attended your Salvation History series and you're just rehashing old stuff, it's because I don't believe in doing new things. I'm a traditionalist. No, look, I wouldn't do you any favors by, you know, we've got to get our foundation. First chapter of Matthew, we can go through this very quickly because you know most of these people. And when you hear this read, I, I'm not sure, I don't think this year they're reading Matthew, but, but that's okay. When you hear this read in, in, uh, in the church, when you read it at home, this should just come alive for you. There, whenever you read a genealogy in the scriptures... Um, they're, they're essential to the story. Without the genealogy, you don't know who you're talking about. And we oftentimes we flip over the genealogy to get it out of the way, but again, building the house on a firm foundation means you know the context of the story. And so you have Jesus' genealogy. Look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, 
of the 12 brothers, right? Judah, the father of Perez. Here's where we picked it up in Ruth, right? Perez of Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram of Abinadab. Abinadab of Nation. Nation of Sam. Solomon. Solomon of uh, Boaz by Rahab. Revealed to us in, uh, in Ruth also. And Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David the king. Which is picked up in 1 Samuel, right? We just talked about. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The, the scriptures, will, oftentimes in the, in the sacred writings, they won't tell the sin explicitly. They'll just let you know. Don't forget. Don't forget who's, whose wife she really is. Um, and Solomon, the son of Rehoboam, or the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the king, the son of Solomon, who was the, the bad guy who broke the kingdom apart by what he did. Okay? Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah of Asa. Right here are all the kings from that point to the end of the, uh, up through verse 11. All those kings during the time of the kings, first and second kings. All these guys were bad guys. And look at verse 9. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the son, born in the context, right, of Isaiah chapter 11. Okay, where we get that, I think I'm right quoting that. A virgin shall conceive and, and have a son, okay? So, you got to know that context. And, Hez, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh of Amos, Amos, father of Josiah, Josiah of Jeconiah, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the final, the last king we know about in the Old Testament. And from there on, this is all brand new information. Why? Why don't we know about these other guys in the, in the Old Testament? The rest of these kings? Because the people are under the dominion of a foreign principality. And if you're the king, and you're under another ruler, the last thing you want to do is stand up. Because they're going to cut your head off. Okay? And so you hide. So this go, the, the, the genealogy goes under, underground, if you will, all the way through verse 16, when we find out that Jacob was the father of Joseph, and Joseph a humble man doing his job, knowing his genealogy, knowing who he was, knowing who he was. And it's through him and through his humility that God brings about the salvation of the world. And that Jesus was born who is called the... Don't translate it into Hebrew from Greek for me. The anointed one. Now tell me what that means. Who is the king? The entire point of the genealogy of Matthew is to tell you who Jesus is as the king. He is the king. He is the one that was awaited. And that whole genealogy is to show you what right he has to the throne. Yes. Yahweh saves. Yeah, it's the name that is used when, whenever you talk about God saving his people. Okay, It's in the context of primarily of military conquest. And Joshua was given that name by Moses because he was, God was with him and he was about to save his people from their enemies when they entered into the promised land, back into their home, and they had met all those people that had gone and moved into their house while they were gone. Okay, so it has a particular, particularly a military conquest aspect to it. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations from David to the deportation to Babylon, how many generations? Okay, and from the from deportation of Babylon to Christ, 
Okay. In Hebrew, the alphabet, each letter of the alphabet has a numerical value to it. And the name David adds up to 14. To 14. What Matthew is doing is he's highlighting, he's, he's in a sense ramming down the throats of his readers the fact of who Jesus is. Okay? He is the son of David, and therefore you will know what he's going to do. He's trying to give you all the tools so that you're able to watch the story unfold, knowing full well what's going to happen. And he repeats that three times for fulfillment, completion. He is the fulfillment of what David was supposed to be. I read you earlier from Daniel about that prolongation of God's works. Jesus is not just like Solomon. Jesus is not just like King David. They don't have nice similarities in their lives. God is bringing about in the person of Jesus Christ what he was bringing about in the person of David. In a sense, you could say that King David and and King Solomon participated to a certain extent in who and what Jesus is as the Christ. They participated much more than they had similar lives. God is acting, and he acts once. It is his act of love which enters into human history, which is drawn together up into eternal life in him. And we participate then in who and what he is. If you can discover who David is and who Solomon is, you will be discovering Jesus Christ. If you want to know who Jesus is, you've got to know who David is. Not, again, because they did similar things, but because the reality of God's revelation was manifest in their lives. You will come to know God himself. And that fulfillment, that presence of God is made complete three times in the person of Jesus Christ who is God himself. Am I getting that point across about this? Not succession of of events which happen to be similar. Not at all. We're talking about God's action entering to human history and, and in a sense bridging all the gaps. All of these are made one in the person of Jesus Christ, just as we are. David was a king in as much as he was a king in Jesus. We are Christians in as much as we are Christians in Jesus by participation in him. So all the generations, okay, 14 generations, three times, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. What is the significance of that? Found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Why is Matthew telling us that? Friends, he has been pounding us over the head with the same thing. And what is it? He is the king. He is the king. And his conception is brought about. He is brought about here on earth by the fact 
that the Holy Spirit is in him and working in him. Look real quick, hold on to your Bibles right there and go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is the anointing which Samuel gave to David the king. Listen, listen to this. Uh, go just before verse 13. So it's chapter 16 and halfway uh, in between. Oh, go verse 12. Verse 12. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome, describing David. And the Lord said, Arise, speaking to Solomon. Samuel, sorry. Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. He was anointed. He was the Messiah. Jesus was not the first Messiah. He is the fulfillment of what it means to be anointed. He is the fulfillment of what it means to have the Spirit. But He's not the first one. God worked through salvation history. The whole story is about people having the gift of the Holy Spirit. Adam received the gift of the Holy Spirit in the beginning. And David receives that gift. And here in that, in that, in that verse, you get that a, a very nice um, a bringing together of both the, the reality that the Jews used oil, and it was a sign of the descent of the Holy Spirit, and it was an anointing. When someone is anointed, the Holy Spirit is upon them. Jesus is the Christ, and the Holy Spirit is bringing this about. He is in him, working through him. He is the king. Yeah. And what do you got to do? You got to better go back and read about the son of David. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to send her away quietly. But as he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the reason why you're not going to do this, okay, and just as he's about to say that, how do we know, how is Joseph identified? Ah, the son of David the son of David. Do you see the constant repetition of what Matthew's trying to get across? Constantly. Do not fear. Take Mary for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is anointed. He's the Messiah. Don't put her away. He's everything that you are and more. He's everything you've lived your life for, Joseph. He's the Messiah. He's the next one in your line. Do not put him away. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Stop. What are you going to do? Thank you. Thank you. I've done my job today. We can all go home now. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. So turn back. I had said Isaiah... Um, yeah, I had said Isaiah 11, but you got to go back. It's Isaiah 7. Okay, so keep your hand in Matthew, though, if you, if you still have it. 7.14. But look, you got to go back to chapter 7, verse 1. And in fact, you got to go back and get bigger context than that. But at least here you get a sense of it. Chapter 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. There you go. Context. During the time of the kings. What's going on during the time of the kings, friends? Good stuff or bad stuff? Okay, the king of Judah. Reason, the, the king of Syria and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. When the house of David was told, that's Judah, Syria is in league with Ephraim, meaning 
the northern kingdom has made a pact with Syria to their north. And now together, they're going to come down and attack Judah. His heart and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go forth to Ahaz, the king of Judah, you and your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your hearts be faint because of these two, because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. They're smoldering. In other words, Israel and Syria are nothing to you. At the fierce anger of reason and, uh, and Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken to pieces so that it will no longer be a people. There's a prophecy, right, foretelling the future, but it's foretelling the future within the context of what's going on. Within 65 years, okay, Isaiah is saying to the king, meaning within one generation, there's the context. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as the heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now that sounds pretty good. It sounds pretty good. Except that you and I know that Isaiah is writing within a context. And what context is it? During the time of the kings. So in order to understand what's going on here, where you got to go? Yes. Okay, fine. So turn there. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 18. If you're saying to yourselves, oh, geez, this is too much. This is too much. Friend, this is, this is, this is fun, right? This is, this is when, you turn off, when you turn off the television during in the days before Christmas. You can do this. It's not hard. Your footnotes in your Bible, I could stand up here and just go from the footnotes and I'd be able to give you this Bible study. They're already there for you. But you've got to get in the practice of doing it. You've got to say to yourself, who's Ahaz? That Isaiah's talking to him like this. I've got to know this guy if I'm going to understand how he's responding. And in 2 Kings, well, let's go back, go back to chapter 16, because I'll just tell you. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He was one of the evil kings that Isaiah was talking to. And we don't have time to read it. But what he had done, because he feared that he was going to be destroyed, was he made a pact with the Assyrians in the north to come and help him, to defend him. He did not trust in the Lord. And Isaiah was saying to him, have faith, have faith in the Lord. And he's saying, no, 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 no. I'm not going to tempt the Lord. I'm not going to put him to the test. I don't want a sign, Isaiah. Stop bothering me, Isaiah. I'm going to work this out. I'm going to become a superpower on my own. Context there in 2 Kings. And what does Isaiah say? Turn back to Isaiah again. 
Ask a sign of the Lord your God, be it as deep as Sheol or as high as the heaven. But Ahaz, verse 12, chapter 7, verse 12. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. Okay, but if you know 2 Kings, you'll know why. He's already made a covenant pact with someone else besides God. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Okay, Isaiah turns and says, he's my God. You just denied him. You just refused him. That you weary my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign whether you like it or not. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. God is with us. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Right? By the time he gains reason. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before those two kings you are in dread will be deserted. They will be conquered because Assyria is about to come in and conquer them. You can continue to read that, that story. He talks about the trickling of waters. There's two, two little rivers of waters. He says these will be shut off. But then the river will come up and surround you to the neck. The Assyrians will come in and they will surround the city of Jerusalem. But in that context, a young woman, the wife of Ahaz, will bear a son, and his name will be Hezekiah. And Hezekiah will be righteous before the Lord, and he will turn the Assyrians away, and he will save Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Now what is, what's interesting, that the, the word here in, uh, in Hebrew is, just as they're translated, young woman, it's, it, can, it can have that context of the virgin, it's a kind of a broad context, but when this text is translated into Greek, the word parthenos is used, which is a more specific word for a virgin, and that's the word that's used in the New Testament when they pick up that, that text and quote it in the Gospel of Matthew. So again, the context of that prophecy, which, yes, points to Mary, not by a nice, isn't it? Matthew's saying, oh, look, even in the Old Testament, this happened, and similarly, God's going to raise up somebody, a nice king, to save us. No. This prophecy is about Hezekiah, but Hezekiah is about Jesus Christ. He is a righteous king in the line which will lead to Jesus Christ. And he's mentioned there in our Lord's genealogy in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you don't know his story, the story of Hezekiah, who are you not going to know? Jesus Christ. You've got to go and know who Hezekiah was. Okay? It turns out Hezekiah, I've got to tell the story, it's my favorite story of being in the Holy Land. Hezekiah was the one who diverted the waters of the spring of Gihon so that it wouldn't flow out and go into the enemy camp so that they could have all the water. He diverted it during this time and when the Assyrians were encamped there and fed it into the city of David to the pool of Siloam where the blind man was healed. And you can go, he, he had a tunnel chipped out underground in Jerusalem. And you can go and walk through that tunnel today and the, and the spring waters of Gihon are flowing there. Cold, crystal clear cold water. And you can walk through that tun tunnel. I went down there and I walked, I thought it was going to take about, you know, a couple minutes or not even a couple minutes, what, 60 seconds, right? You can't chip that far. I was down there for like 15 to 20 minutes walking at full speed. They had shipped this little tunnel, and it's not big. It's about this, you know, like this, and the thing, if you're claustrophobic, don't go. But, oh, anyways, it was Hezekiah that did that. And you'll read the story of Hezekiah, and they will talk about him doing that, diverting the waters. 
you got to know his story because he saves the people of Israel, of Judah, from the attack of the foreign enemy. They're surrounding Jerusalem. Assyria was the empire of the world. To a Jew, it must have looked as though, you know, this, you know the, the movie with the, the, you know, Tolkien's movie with the trolls and everything, you know? And they look out there and they see the army coming. Remember that? And there's boom, boom. And as far as they can see, this massive army is streaming towards them. It must have looked like that to the Jews as the, as the soldiers were coming over the hills and filling the valleys, surrounding Jerusalem and laying siege to it. But Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. And he did not make a pact with the foreign kings. He trusted in the Lord. And the Lord delivered him out of the hands of his enemies and destroyed, ended up destroying the Assyrian Empire. And just as Rome fell and, and, and Christianity raised up and Christ now rules as king forever. Go back to Matthew real quick. Boy, two hours and we got to one prophecy. That's not too good. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had born a son. And he called his name Jesus. If, you wanna, if you're taking notes, write down 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 23. 2 Samuel 6, 23. You can also write down Deuteronomy 34, 6. And there's many, many others. I'm not going to give you right now. I can give them to you later. The word until there, in our, in our English language, it's as though the, the situation changes at, at a given time. This happened until this time, which would indicate that there's a change of events at that point. Not at all. Not at all in the Greek and also the Hebrew. The word is, is simply saying, up until this point, this is the situation. Here's what was taking place. But it's not indicating what is happening afterwards. Okay, And so you'll see... In that text I gave you from uh, 2 Samuel, it says that she had no children until the day of her death. It's a good, it's a good apologetic point because there's clearly she's not going to have children after she died, right? She continued not having children. Okay, it has no sense of this situation change. I just point that out to you from an apologetic standpoint. That many attack this during this season. You'll see that on the History Channel. I guarantee you. And again, it's not saying. Don't think I'm a heretic here. Okay? It's not saying that she didn't have other children after that. It's just not saying anything about that. That's the way that the, the, the language was used at that time. Okay? And I'm happy to give you the Hebrew and Greek if you want to come up later. Second Samuel, oh, Deuteronomy 34, 6. And if you want to come up later, I'll give you all the references I have for that that are helpful. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men came from the east. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? Now notice, we have just spent an entire chapter forcing one issue. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one of God. This is the one that's supposed to come to rule Judea. And in chapter 2, Now when Jesus was born... In Bethlehem of Judea, okay, quoting from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, okay, fulfilling the prophecy. The, why, would he, why would the king come from Bethlehem, by the way? That's where David came from. Okay, so Matthew is just sitting here pumping his audience, basically saying, king, 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 king. In the days, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. So what do you think Matthew's setting up here? 
It's between two men next to each other, right? Jesus, who is the true king, and Herod, who is a pretender to the throne. They came from the East Jerusalem and say, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. In assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Again, the reference there. It's in your, this is actually a good, helpful. Look down to your footnote in your Bible. You see that? Chapter 2, verse 6 of Matthew points to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, doesn't it? You can do that on your own, can't you? And when you get to Micah, what do you want to ask yourself? Con- thank you. Context. Okay? And most of the time, the first couple of verses will tell you what context he's writing in, and it'll tell you where to go into First and Second Kings to find out, to read his historical context. And so what does King Herod do? What's he end up doing? Yeah. Yeah, slaughtering all of the babies. Huh? Do you know he would have, he he risked his position among the Romans by doing that. Do you think they heard what he did? Do you think it was popular among the people? Do you think it caused people to become very angry? Yes. Herod was placed there to calm the situation down. And he calls the wise men and says, Talk to me about this star which is coming out of the east. Talk to me about this child which is supposed to be born. Tell me, what do you think they told him about? They would have looked at the prophecies, huh? There's one prophecy quoted here, but do you think they would have laid the whole situation out for him? They knew what to expect. I want to turn you back real quickly to Numbers chapter 24. Do you know who Herod was, what his background was? He was an Edomite, descendants of Ishmael. He was not even a Jew. So Numbers chapter 24. This is happening. This is the prophecy of Balaam. And this is happening as the Jews are encamped across the Jordan River, across from Jericho, near Moab. Remember the story of Moab. That's the reason for the writing of Deuteronomy, for the sin of Moab. They're encamped across, and the Moabites and the other people of the Holy Land are are starting to get scared. This massive group of Israelites have come across the desert, and they're rocking. They're just destroying anyone who stands up against them. And so the Moabites and the other people that are living in that area are, are scared. And so they call their pagan prophet, Balaam, and they say, prophesy against these people that they will be destroyed by our gods. And what does Balaam do? He doesn't. He blesses them. Okay? So you get that story in Numbers chapter 24, but we're going to look at chapter 24, verse 15. He goes and he gives his oracle, his, his, uh, his prophecy. He says, He took up half his discourse and said, The oracle of, ba- of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High. This is a pagan prophet, okay? All of a sudden, you see this, this happened at Cy- with Cyrus too. All of a sudden, this pagan starts talking like a believer. Okay? God is inspiring him. 
And he says, uh, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down, but having his eyes uncovered. I see him, but but not now. I behold him, but not nigh. A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. What's that scepter? What's that reference to? Yeah, the king. But remember, in chapter 50 of Genesis, when 12 sons are being blessed, and Judah receives the blessing to receive the scepter. The scepter shall not depart from between his legs until it comes to him who will receive it, Jesus. Okay, so this is picking up on that Genesis prophecy, but listen to this. A star shall come forth out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom, Herod's an Edomite, Edom shall be dispossessed. Edom shall be dispossessed. Herod must have been pointed to not only the text quoted here for us from Micah, but even to this text by the wise men of the Jews who were looking for the coming of the king. When that day comes, Edom will be dispossessed. Herod will be destroyed and his throne will be no more. And he goes into a terror. He flips out and he starts murdering innocent babies to save his own throne. Go back to Matthew. Then, verse, verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained to them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship. When they had heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening the treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Susie, what's the name of your movie? The Star of Bethlehem. Star of Bethlehem. Susie found this great little movie called The Star of Bethlehem, which points out some of the, um, the astronomical things that were happening during this time. Okay, this guy went back and looked, did research to find out how the stars were aligning, and he shows how, I can't tell you the whole thing, you've got to go and, and, and look at it, but not only is this a prophecy that's taking place, but in fact, historically, astronomy was doing certain things, but it's pretty cool, so... Star of Bethlehem. Do you know the guy's name? Steve McAvee produced Okay, but you're not allowed to go and watch that movie until you read this gospel and look up the Old Testament prophecies because I don't care. I, that's important and all that. But here's the action. And when you go back to 2 Kings, you get all the real action with all the war and stuff. So Herod would have known these things, okay? He would have known, well, if he didn't know them because he was an Edomite, the teachers of the Jews would have known them and they would have pointed these things out to him. So you've got to ask yourself, why did the guy freak out? Why did he flip out like this? Because he was afraid. He was afraid. I mean, it's obvious he was afraid that he was going to lose his throne of another king came. But there's the prophecy saying the Edomites will be dispossessed. He will lose his throne when the Messiah comes, when the king comes. Just real quickly, verse 18, chapter 2, verse 18, or verse 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. 
she refused to be consoled because they were no more. Ramah is the burial place of Rachel. Rachel was the wife of Jacob. This is her burial place, and she's weeping for her children are no more. But what's the prophecy about? The holy innocence, right? Wrong! Right! But I'm not going to build the house on that, right? you got to go back to Jeremiah and ask what is going on. Because look, the whole situation with the, with the, whole, with the holy innocence and so forth is a fulfillment of what took place. So go back there real quick. Jeremiah 31, you're saying, right? Jeremiah 31, 15. Look at that. You can do it even better than I can. Yes. Thus says the Lord. Go ahead. Nice and loud. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. Okay. What is the context? Keep your hand there. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 1. We looked at this already. At the beginning, we looked at this. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the, uh, of the priests who were in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, okay, which is where Ramah is. And you look at the last, the last line of verse 3. Until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Okay? Jeremiah is preaching during the time of the captivity. Jeremiah is one of the guys who gets taken captive in the third deportation. Okay? He's taken captive. Look at chapter 40 of Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. I'm sorry, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. After uh, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. What happened is as the exiles were being gathered, they were taken to Ramah. They were about to be taken out of the Holy Land. Jerusalem was burning. The smoke, this, this town is, is within a few miles of Jerusalem. They would have seen over the hills the smoke billowing into the air of their holy city. Their brothers had been slaughtered. Their families had been slaughtered. Their children had been slaughtered. And they were in chains to be taken off. And Jeremiah is freed. Somehow he must have got in with the captain of the guard. And the captain of the guard let him go. And he returned to the people that were left in the Holy Land. Who was left in the Holy Land? The poor, the people that could tend the, the ground. All of those people... I don't want to get too far off, but the entire force of the exile, the reason for the exile was because they were not observing the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, all of those that were enslaved, all of those that were, that were indebted were freed. All of the poor were freed. And so all of the rich were taken into exile, into slavery, Right? Your sins follow you. And the poor people were released and left in the land. And so he goes back to those poor people. He goes, to the, he goes back to Jerusalem and joins the people on Mount Zion. And it's in that context. Rachel is weeping for her children are no more. They have been slaughtered by the Babylonians. And they're about to be taken out of the land. It's also in that context, if you flip a few pages to the next book in your Bible, which is Lamentations that Jeremiah writes the book. He writes Lamentations, and notice what he says. He's released by the captain of the guard. 
they're a few miles from Jerusalem, and he starts walking back. And he comes to look at the city. I think he must have been approaching. Just when I was in the Holy Land, I was just thinking about being up there above the Mount of Olives, okay, where Christ rode in to the city of Jerusalem, where you can look and you see the holy city. And what did he see? How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the cities has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night, tears on her cheeks, and so forth. Jeremiah comes back to the land, and he starts crying. Because the people have been destroyed. They're laying dead in the streets. The smoke is rising up, and the throne of God has been cut off. It's that, that context that the people had in their heart. As they prepared for the coming of the king, the one who would give them back everything that they had had, and more. We're out of time. I didn't get to the Gospel of John. I'll just say this. I mentioned earlier about the Pharisees coming down and asking, are you Elijah? First of all, they come down to the Jordan River. They come up to John, and John, before they ever ask a question, he says, I'm not the Christ. <laughs> they need to ask him a question. How many times has somebody walked up to you and you said, I'm not, I'm not the Christ. I'm not him. I'm not him. Because he knew what he looked like. He knew what they were expecting. He knew what they wanted. And he says, I'm not him. I'm not him. Are you the prophet? They ask. Are you the prophet? And who's the prophet in the Old Testament? Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses says, a prophet like me, God will raise up. And he will save you from your enemies. A prophet like me. What did Moses do? He took the people out of slavery. He walked them through the Red Sea. He baptized them through the Red Sea. And he brought them to paradise. So Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, also will take us. He is the prophet. He is the one who Moses pointed to. He is the one who Moses participated in. Will also take us out of slavery to sin. He will baptize us through the waters of baptism and he will bring us into paradise where we will stand like Moses before God on Mount Sinai and we will be changed into the glory of the Lord. This is what the people waited for and this is also what we should wait for. As I said, the Old Testament prophets were not only, or, or things, people and events, were not only similar to what was coming. They participated in what was coming. And we also participate in that reality. When Christ is born among us, we have an opportunity to not commemorate the nativity of Christ, but to be there, to participate in the nativity of Christ. The liturgy makes present on earth the divine realities. If you're thinking, I don't know if I'll go to midnight mass this year. It's too long. It's, I, I'm too old for that. Friends, how many years do you have left? <laughs> How many Christmases do we have left? Get there and experience the star rising in the east. See Jesus Christ born in your midst for our salvation. Not to commemorate it, but to live it. To live it.